0: of, uh, zeal for God, and if I can see where my button is at, there we go. Uh, it reminds me that there was a man by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, a great preacher of the word uh, a few decades ago, and uh, I borrowed a lot of, uh, interesting thoughts from him, and, uh, reading his sermons and his works that he's put forth, among many other people, of course. But um, it's interesting, he had a great illustration dealing with righteousness. And he uh, was using an illustration from a pastor friend of his. Uh, Him and his family uh, were in Canada. I think they were at a conference, a Bible conference, and they had a break during the day, and so as they were driving down the street, they realized that they were very hungry. It was time to stop, and uh, there they saw a very uh, luxurious hotel, a restaurant in it that was well known. So they stopped there, and they got out of the car, and went up to the door, and there was a maitre d'. Maitre d' was all dressed up, had a coat, tie, and uh, he looked the part of a maitre d' and he acted the part because the man that was at the pastor and uh, that particular day, he didn't have a coat or a tie on, he just had regular shirt and pants on. And the maitre d' with his nose up high like that started shaking his head. It's like, you can't come, he didn't even say a word. It's like, you can't come in here. So the pastor thought, I guess we're going to have to leave here and find another place, wherever that may be. And as he got ready to go, uh, a young lady uh, ran up to him and said, around the corner, there is a, a spot there where you can get a coat and a tie. And he thought, oh, okay, that sounds intriguing. He thought, uh, listen, uh, I think I'll do that because I really don't want to hunt for another place. And so he went around the corner and went back there and there was this little booth and there was somebody in there. And so he said, I have a request. Uh, Can you give me a coat and a tie? Do you have one? And uh, they looked at him and said yes. And they kind of measured him up just by looking at him and what his size was. Went to the back, came out with a coat and a tie and uh, he put the coat and the tie on and got all prepped up there and he walked out and sure enough as he walked around the corner again there is that maitre d maitre d doesn't say a word again just like this as he kind of put his nose up and uh, it was like the pastor was saying i got a coat and a tie and the maitre d said anyway he was able to go in and they ate their meal Now, you're waiting for a punchline. I know you're waiting for the joke. Well, Dennis doesn't tell jokes very good, and he doesn't tell very good stories either. And I'm just borrowing this from somebody, so you can blame it on S. Lewis Johnson. So I'll bring out the spiritual punchline. Are you ready? It's really a great illustration of the righteousness of God to his people. Because, you see, we do not have the robe of righteousness on unless we had Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our coat and tie. We come in, if we went by ourselves, we would come in dirty, like in Zechariah. And, and of course, you have the the priest there and his dirty clothes. And uh, the thing is, is that we need this robe of righteousness because we have no righteousness of our own at all. And that is the way that S. Lewis Johnson used that. We don't have any righteousness there but we do know that the management has provided the righteousness that we need. And that's what that restaurant did. They provided a coat. If you didn't come in with it, they would Bring one to you and it was acceptable and you had access now to go into the restaurant and so it is as we go into eternity we have the righteousness of Christ put on us and that is because of the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary it's sufficient isn't it it covers our sin So, the question that we would, I think, could ask people who we know that are lost is how can you be righteous before a holy God? How can you be right before a God who is holy and righteous in every way? And we are not. We are guilty. We are guilty in our sin. And that's the problem. God is the only righteousness. Now, I know a lot of people would say, Yeah, but I've been pretty good. And that's usually what people use for that defense. Well, pretty good doesn't get it because God demands absolute perfect righteousness. Nothing can please Him except for the righteousness of Christ. And He provides His own righteousness for us, it's a free gift. And so, just like the man put on the coat and the tie, it was a gift for that particular time to wear to get access there. Paul has been explaining all throughout the righteousness of God. And he is right, he's good, he's perfect, he is holy, he is totally set apart from all of his creation and all of mankind. So how can one stand in the presence of this holy God? And we say, no one. No one unless God has provided His righteousness for them. And as Paul has been explaining this through Romans, he continues it on now as we start a new chapter today in chapter 10. And uh, we know that righteousness was starting to be explained in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, illustrations of that, God giving His righteousness Mm -hmm. to Abraham and also David, all the way through there we've seen that. And God grants righteousness to His people. And we must have that by faith. And that's what we'll be getting into today. Uh, So let's uh, gladly take our Bibles. Mm Turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Father, great God, what a passage that you've given us here about your righteousness. In the failure of every person who's ever been born. The failure to meet the demands of your righteousness. No one can do that except your son. And that's where salvation comes comes in, where one has to see that they have a great need for righteousness. The righteousness of God or they'll be turned away. So Lord, as we approach this text give me the words to say, give me the power that will give meaning and clarity to everyone here, that we'd be able to take some depth here and understand a little bit more how you work and what your will is and how we are to view the lost and to have a view that Paul had as he desired for people to be saved. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'll go into uh, verse one, Romans ten, and you remember we uh, just finished last week at nine, of course, and there was a stumbling stone for the Jew, the stumbling stone is Christ, and it says just as it is written in the very last verse there, behold I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. That's to the one who denies the righteousness of God and are saying, I am good. I do this. I do that. I think this. I say this. I am okay. And that be Christ with His righteousness and it's a gift and it's all by grace. And God is sovereign in it all. That's a stumbling stone for the Jew. Here is the context. It's a stumbling stone for anybody, really. And then he says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. There's the other side. And it's faith. And that's where you have the sovereignty of God, yet believing in God, that is the responsibility of man. And where that battle is and the struggle is, we know in the human mind, but God has designed it that way, He says, to believe. And all to all who come to Him, He will know why He's cast out. Of course, we've talked about that before. Now we move into chapter 10, verse 1. And He says, brethren. And the first thing that we think about here is, who are the brethren? Well, I think really it's uh, in the context, it would be to the people who are fellow believers, brothers, sisters. Um, I want to tell you something about them. As he says here, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So he talks to one group that would be believers and he says, what about Israel? And that's where we started in chapter 9. You remember that? And uh, Paul, said uh, he has a great concern. He's grieving for that Israel. And then he goes on and explains that there are chosen ones out of Israel that God is going to save. It's not going to be everybody. And so he goes through all of chapter 9. That's where we have arrived here in chapter 10. And he starts off with almost the same way that he did in chapter 9. He says, my heart's desire... By the way, this could be to a Jew too, though, if he's arguing with them. And he brings up his arguments one step after another. And he's come up through chapter 9. He says, I want you to know again that I'm not trying to blast them Where I have, and I have no heart for you guys. He says, my heart's desire. My prayer is for you. Uh, so it could even be to them as he would be talking to them live and in person. Or he's written it. And a Jew is reading it, so therefore there could be a brethren there as far as kinsmen. I think the text is is not necessarily the Jews because he's distinguishing, but at, at any rate, it, it could be to anybody, really, couldn't it? So uh, with that uh, being understood, uh, Paul is one who has been, um, I guess you could say because of the stumbling block he put before the Jew, the Jews have abused him. They have reviled him. They have persecuted him, haven't they? And so as he writes this, he knows full well that they hate him. But here in chapter 10, he says, my desire is that they be saved. My prayer for them is that they be saved. Chapter 9, if you remember in the very first verse, uh, or second verse, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. There, his brethren there, would be who? The Jews. My kinsmen, as he makes clear. According to the flesh. According to how we were born in the physical realm. He says, I really am mourning and I'm grieving here for them. They're the ones who had the adoption as the sons uh, of God and uh, they had the written oracles the very word of God and uh, the priests the the temple sacrifices and so he knows full well and that is how he addresses them in chapter nine. we see it here in 10 in our text go to chapter 11 look at Paul's heart for his people. I say then God has not rejected his people has he? Well, it kind of goes back to that because it sounds like God has rejected them. And it says, May it never be, for I too am an Israelite. He's talking about flesh and blood. He actually is from Israel. He is a natural Jew. He says, A descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, that's you can't take that spiritually. It's just obvious that he's saying, I come from the... Same heritage, the same lineage, the same group of people. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And I think he makes it clear there. He has not rejected Israel, the ones whom he foreknew. And I think uh, he really gets it down to the very choice ones that he has foreknown. He has loved them. He's predestined them, predetermined them. And then he starts talking about Elijah, and there was a remnant. A remnant, remnant is the one group of people that would be elect, and uh, he used that idea. Uh, I have 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. So that is where Paul is at and his view of the Israelites. You'd think that he would be done with them. You think it's would say, God is done with those people and he's going to move on now because they rejected God and that's it now. 70 AD, you would probably say the same thing. See, it just proves that again, you know, God has brought judgment and he's done with them now. But 9, 10, and 11 is making it very clear no, he's not because this is what grace is, what supreme example it is to take people who have rejected him. And rejected them for hundreds and thousands of years, and there he is still bringing his elect from them into his family. Nine, ten, eleven does that, and so now we are in the midst of this as we are into chapter ten. Paul not only forgave them, but he also prayed for them constantly. My prayer to get. To to God for them is for their salvation. Um, he said, "Praying always." Remember that in First Thessalonians, uh, we we know about where Paul's heart was constantly. Uh, he was always praying for the lost, and you know, we always have access to God. The people that were are bringing to the lost, the very Gospel that will save them, they may not give you access to them. They say, that's enough. I don't want to hear anymore. Has that ever happened to you? I'm sure it probably has. But you know what? Don't give up because God has given us access to Him. Even though man doesn't necessarily, that means salvation should uh, be, of them should never stop us from praying for them. God has mercy on whom He has mercy, and God will harden whom He will harden. It's all His prerogative, and He does so. But our attitude is the sense that we're not to be governed by God's secret counsel. God knows exactly the ones He's going to save, Concerning them, and that's as John Murray has said, we cannot know the mind of God in regard to salvation of sinners. And it's like Spurgeon has said, uh, you can't take the shirt off of one and see the letter E there for elect. So we pray for them and we pray that their souls would be saved. Uh, We should always pray for them. God calls sinners to repentance, doesn't He? He calls out for sinners everywhere as they are lost and they need to repent and believe in Him. But He always ordains the way that He has in mind for it to be done. Uh, he has the what would be called the means to the ends. He's ordained the means of how He's going to do it, what person He's going to work through. Uh, and it's always the Gospel. And He's also ordained the ends for how that comes out. So, if He's going to use us in our prayer life, then it's necessary that we pray for that individual. And indeed, we must pray, since the individual that we want to be saved, he will not be saved apart from God ordaining intercession. And that's how people become saved. And God works in that all the way. This should encourage us to pray, shouldn't it? Because He can use us, He will use us to give the Gospel to people who need it. Uh, look in 1 Timothy 2, one. This is a reminder we always need here. In the day that we live, boy, does it ever apply. And it's really no different than whenever... Paul was writing to Timothy and what a state the world was in at that time. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes a letter. This is called the uh, Pastoral Epistle to Timothy, as well as 2 Timothy and Titus and such. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, Be made on behalf of all men. All men everywhere. All Gentiles, Jews, you know, the elect are everywhere. Everywhere. All those men. All kinds of men. For kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity that we'd be able to live The Christian life that we so desire to have freedoms in Christ. While you are in the Roman Empire at this time, you really didn't have a lot of freedom. And we know that uh, about the early church and as time went on near the end of the first century, it just increased and being persecution constantly all over that empire. There he's saying, I want you to be praying for kings, the, the governors, all the leaders. So therefore, we want to make it a habit always to be praying for our city government, our our uh, county government, state government, our national government, federal government, in every aspect, those leaders that we know of, and whether they be believers or not believers, be praying for them that their souls would be saved. And then that, and that alone can change where a nation is at in the way that they're heading. It is prayer and the Word of God and the Spirit of God working in those leaders that could change their policies and their thinking because that's the only way that things can happen. And that's where the church probably makes the biggest impact is when we're in prayer. And I must admit, I forget to pray publicly and even privately sometimes about those leaders because I'm so consumed with the next thing that they've drummed up that is absolutely anti-biblical and anti-God, and yet at the same time God says, okay, you know what's right. Now, you need to pray for them. Now, does that mean you're going to get your prayer answered and everybody in the government's going to become Christians? Probably not. But we, he says to pray for him anyway, doesn't he? And so we do. That's the mark of the church, the church worldwide. What would happen if the whole body of Christ was really praying with zeal to do that? I don't know. God has a plan. He has a sovereign plan. He's going to come out the way that he wants it. And at the same time, he uses us in that plan to figure that out. Alright, that's number one. We go back to our Romans 10 and we move right through verse 1. Let's go to verse 2. For I testify... By the way, the interesting word there for testify is martyre. Martyr, or it means to testify. One actually would testify. And when Christians testified Christ or witnessed... We use that word today. Witness. Testimony. A witness gives a testimony. When we give a witness, we often forget about what that means. Is you're gonna, It's persecution. <laughs> it's to be martyred. That's how that word came out to be in that very early time. I testify about them that have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And a zeal for God now, that's what we have for our title uh, but here the next word is a little three letter word it's but and then not in accordance with knowledge a zeal these people are lost they need salvation um, these Jews that Paul is speaking about but it applies to us too any Gentile or Jew they're lost And he says a very shocking thing here. And he's saying they have a zeal for God. And you'd say, well then, there's no problem. They have a zeal for God. They're zealous for God. Don't you like that phrase? Well, that's what they had. Only thing is, the stumbling block here is that they have a zeal for God and they're not saved. How can that be to have a zeal for God and not saved? Well, you see, the Jews took religion very seriously. Oh, did they ever take it seriously. And they took that law and they magnified on it and they stretched it out to the nth degree. The zeal that they had, though, was away from Christ because he's the stumbling block after all. And if they do such and such a thing, one after another after another, they can see, see, I'm following the law. See how good this is? And so you think of those Pharisees, the self-righteousness that they had. They were zealous for the things of God. But it was not acceptable by God. So zeal does not find acceptance with God. sincerity does not find acceptance with God. Just believing does not find acceptance with God. You say, well, that sounds rather strange. Uh, there's a lot of people who are very serious about things. Very many people are sincere. But as I've often said, they're sincerely wrong according to knowledge based on the Word. That's what's happening here in verse 2. This can apply to anybody, can it? Uh, It doesn't matter what you believe. People will say, just as long as you believe, that's good. Just believe in something. Well, we certainly know that to be false, don't we? can't be that. Hey, if we do the best that we can, surely God will accept us then. Well, that's the problem. You can only do the best that you can, and it still comes up short. What does sin mean? falling short of the glory of God. It can never be. It's not good enough, God says. That's why Luther hated God, because his goodness was not good enough, and he realized that I can never be good enough. Exactly! (laughs) That's where we want to get people to be, where they would realize they don't have anything good. Easy for us. Now, For I testify, I witness, I martyry about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They are without knowledge. By the way, the word for knowledge is very key to pick up here. I don't like to go through every word and try to get the Greek word. But there's certain key words here today that I want to bring out. It's epignosis. epi Gnosis. Gnosis is what? To know. You've heard of Gnosticism? It's the same thing. It means to know. We are in the know. We know the secret things. Gnosticism was to know secret things. It's like the Masons. They have secret things that nobody can know except if you are a Mason. And how do you reach the 33rd degree? Right? Then you'll know all of there. And so you got a secret knowledge. But here it says, accordance with God's kind of knowledge. Knowledge. Epignosis means this. To really know. People can have a knowledge, but it be wrong, right? But to have epignosis is to really know God. To know Him by truth. To know it's real. To have a relationship with Him. That's an epignosis. What is eternal life? This is eternal life that you may know God. That's what it's all about. If you know God, then you know His glory that He wants to keep showing you. Do you want to know His absolute glory? That is what we're after, isn't it? So epignosis, they don't have. They have a knowledge, all right, but it's not the knowledge of God. Paul knew this very well, this zealousness. Did Paul have a zeal for God and be lost at one time? The Apostle Paul, who was Saul, was he zealous for God? If anybody was zealous, it had to be Saul. Uh, And that's really what it's about. He knew what it was to have religious work, so we turn to Philippians 3, verse 5 and 6. We've probably used this many, many times. You see the gospel is always shooting down self-works and here, yeah, but at least I did this, I do this, hey I believed, you know. It's it's this. Look look in five. He says, Circumcised the eighth day it's the law of the Jews, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That was good to him. He said Pharisee as far as Jesus was concerned. that was bad news, wasn't it? As to zeal, there's our word right there that we're looking at right now. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, the very church who he would later build up and edify by writing epistles to them as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Outwardly, I don't think you could have got anything on Saul. Nobody could blame him on anything. Actually, you could get him on every one of them according to the righteousness of God, but according to the righteousness of man, Paul was elite. I can't think of anything higher than him in a very religious, works-oriented system. So look at what Paul says about himself in Acts 22. Just before Romans here, this is a testimony of Paul. By the way, did you know that your testimony is a great way to present salvation? Don't be afraid to use it because you know, here it is. I'm going to give you an outline of what a testimony is. Tell them what you once were, who Christ is and what He did for your life, and who you are now. It's past, present, future. As your outline. That's really what you need. By the way, definitely use the gospel in it. But you can say you were a sinner. God is the one who saved you. You cried out to Him. You repented. You had faith in Him. Christ came to you, saved you. And here you are now desiring to follow Him in all of His ways. And so here's Paul in his testimony. He says in verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, Gentile land, but he was Jew, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. How's that? Well, he was educated under Gamaliel. That means he went to the best seminary they could go to absolute best, strictly according to the law of our fathers. Being here's our word, zealous for God. He was zealous for God, just as you all are today. And he's speaking to people who are Jewish or Gentiles or. I persecuted this way, the church was first known as the way, to the death binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of elders can testify. I did that and everybody knows it, and all the leaders knew exactly what I did. Paul is saying this, is he bragging, is he really boasting in what he did? from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And the rest of the story is we know what happened to Damascus. Christ came to him, knocked him off his horse, (laughs) took out the ground from underneath him, and he had nothing to stand on. He had no righteousness to present to God anymore. He fell flat. He was blinded and that represented, that's what all people are, they're blinded to the very truth of God and they can't see it until God opens up their eyes. It was all a sovereign act of grace that God did to a very sinful, wicked man who was zealous for God. That sounds odd, doesn't it? But, see, that's the problem. He was zealous for God's law that it be fulfilled in him. And that's a stench to God because no man can do that. They see that I can't follow the law because it condemns me and that's what it was meant for. So, Paul knew this very well as he dealt with this, gave his testimony He did a lot of great persecution, didn't he? I want you to turn to Matthew 23, verse 15, the words of Jesus Himself. This sounds very condemning. It sounds very unloving. But it is the most loving words that He could say because Pharisees were counting absolutely on nothing but their own righteousness. In following the law, 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much as a son of hell as yourselves. Woe! Jesus, you're getting a little bit too vulgar here. He had to say it very clearly. Were they zealous for God? Yeah, they went across the sea to bring their Judaism to the Gentiles and make them proselytes to turn them over to be like Jews. So they believe and do the same thing as they did. And so therefore, what does Jesus say? Well, woe to you. And He says, you, you make them twice as much a son of some hell as yourselves. You make them even worse. Wow. Uh, Jesus said that, folks. Go to John uh, chapter 6, verse 2. Chapter 16, verse 2. And He says to the apostles, speaking of religious leaders, religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, all the hypocrites, the people in the synagogues, the leaders there, they will make you outcast from the synagogue But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. This happened in that very century that Jesus said these kind of things. He says the leaders in the synagogue will cast you out. They'll turn you over to the government and they'll kill you. They'll persecute you. You know, all throughout church history that has actually happened. And it happened right in that century and it's even happening today in our world. Because if you believe in Christ and in the biblical way, that brings on judgment to them. Because, you see, the Holy Spirit brings a an actual true collapse of sin and righteousness and judgment whenever the law is actually brought. Sin, there's sin. The righteousness of God and the judgment that God will have upon those who do not trust in Him. So people will be cast out, as we know full well. That has happened. It still is happening. It will always happen. Jesus prophesied that. And so we get this not according to knowledge, and uh, of course when we get back to our Romans 10 here, kind of leading into verse 3, we're not quite there yet, but not knowing about God's righteousness, not knowing is ignorant. They were ignorant. And today that's a derogatory term, and you have to be careful in calling people ignorant. But actually it's a very biblical term here. It means to, you know, when we think of ignorant, uh, we think of somebody who would not have knowledge. They would actually say, I don't know. Now, here they think they know, but they really don't know. They don't know. Not knowing about God's righteousness, they know about their righteousness, but they don't know about God's righteousness. And uh, of course, ah, uh, gnosis—I guess you could say—they really don't have knowledge, do they? Um, you ever heard of agnostic? We know that agnostic is really saying this. There's an atheist that says there is no God. An agnostic says, I don't know if there's a God or not. Well, okay, could you sit down and can I talk to you, right? Uh, An agnostic says, I haven't come to that conclusion. And usually they don't really care. But hopefully they would care enough about their eternal life that they would listen to what you have to say. But they're saying, I'm ignorant. That's really an agnostic. Oh, what are you? Are you an atheist? No, I'm agnostic. No, they're saying, no, I'm ignorant. (laughs) That's really what they're saying. Uh, So there we have these Jews who are ignorant of God's righteousness. And they would say, what do you mean we're ignorant of God's righteousness? And Paul would come back and he says, uh, you just don't get it. You don't get it at all. You think that the righteousness of God is the righteous demand that He has and you have the capability to meet that demand that He has set forth in His law and you can do it and then you bring that up to Him and you've met His standard and you give it to Him and say, there God, I did my work. Pretty good, huh? Uh, You see, that can't be accepted. God will not, never accept that. And by the way, that is a stench. And what he's saying, Paul is saying this is a free gift. This is given to you freely. Salvation. Now, to us Christians sitting here, that's almost like, yeah, can we go on here, Paul? Can, Dennis, can you go on? We know this. This is a salvation message, isn't it? But the problem is that they want to be accepted in their own way and they don't want the free gift that comes through Christ and believing in Him, knowing the righteousness comes to me who is not righteous at all. Now in the Catholic Church, they teach salvation by faith. Not faith alone, because they have other things to add to it. Salvation by grace, yeah, and other things. Salvation by Christ alone, yeah, and other things. What about the Catholic and his righteousness? Well, what what it is, we have the idea of imputation That's what the Reformed theology believes, where God takes your righteousness, Christ does, and he puts on us the very righteousness of Christ and leaves nothing of our righteousness to be added to. A Catholic takes the righteousness that they already have, and then they add on to it the righteousness of Christ. That is a stench because no man has any righteousness before God. It has to be taken out. That's what imputation does. There's an exchange that's made. Our self-righteousness is cast out. Christ's righteousness is put on us. Basic theology, one-on-one, here, isn't it? It, it? It is something that we know, but this is what Paul is trying to get through, and that's what... Our message has to get through to people who are lost because they're hanging on to what? Something about themselves. There's only two religions. One is right and one is wrong. One says, by grace I'm saved and nothing else. And it's all by Christ. Or I'm saved by Christ and His works. Or if you're outside of Christianity, I'm saved by my works. What I believe, what I do, right? What I say okay, so uh, zeal, then we see in a negative way here. Because you can say, okay, if, if you're saying they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge or with knowledge, then zeal really isn't essential, is it? I don't have to have zeal. I can just Say I believe what Christ did on the cross, and you can go on your merry way. I don't have to be zealous and zeal for Him. We're going to prove now. Let's go to the other side and say a Christian has to have zeal, and it sounds like the opposite because we just proved if you have zeal, then you're lost. We know better than that, don't we? The zeal for God they had, but not in accordance with knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness. You see, um, the conclusion comes up, the Bible not only says that you can have a zeal for God and not be saved, but it also says that you will not be saved if you don't have a zeal for God. There's a challenge. If you don't have a zeal for God, you will be lost also. A zeal for God's righteousness. That's what we are to know. We are to seek that, establish that. Um, what do you mean? Well, in Revelation 3.16, uh, there we have the words, as Jesus giving the Epistle to to the churches, the seven churches. One of them, he gave them this, and you'll be quite familiar with it. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're not zealous at all. And Jesus, as He talked to the church in Laodicea, and He's saying, hey, uh, you're not cold, you're not hot. They really didn't have a feeling that was towards the Savior that they needed. It wasn't really special for Jesus. Yeah, we believe in him, but uh, you know, you have to live your own life. And uh, nobody's going to help you out. You have to help yourself. You're going to get spit out of his mouth. Revelation 3.16 says. Look in Romans 12. Verse eleven in the book that we're studying. Here Paul talks about a zeal. Not lagging behind in diligence. If you're you're a Christian, you don't don't lag behind in diligence. Here's the word fervent in spirit. Fervent. The word there would be zeantes, and it means zeal. Or in the Latin it would be Fervents, and that's how we get our English word from Latin to English. Fervent or zealous. And what does zeontas mean? Well, it means to boil. To boil over. To boil. Let's read that. Not lagging behind in diligence, boiling in spirit. On fire for the Lord. You ever heard of that phrase? That is what we like to hear. We want to be hot, don't we? We don't want to be cold or lukewarm. Especially, don't be lukewarm. Go on one way or the other. Be fervent on whatever it is. But if you really is, you will boil on fire for God. Zealous Christians, that's what we like. Sometimes we can be a little overzealous. But you know what? I'd rather have that than no zealous, fervent spirit at all, right? You know what it's talking about there? A love for Jesus. That's really the realm that we want to be. Fervent, zealous, to have zeal. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, you You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. I'll say that again. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That means if you don't really love Christ, you're not His. Uh, 1 John, it talks about that. If you don't love your brother, you're not, you're not a believer. If you don't love people, you're not a believer. Black and white. Just simple as that. We don't have the option to go around hating people. There might be people we'd rather not be around and that's okay. Probably using discretion there, hopefully, right? Uh, But you are not to hate them and you are to love them. But it's interesting here. This is 1 Corinthians 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now it doesn't say this. If anyone has not made a decision for the Lord, let him be accursed. Do you see that? Does, Does it say that? If anyone has not made a decision for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let's go a little further. If anyone does not believe in the Lord, let him be accursed. By the way, in that verse it doesn't say that. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That is the idea. Do you love Jesus? That is what it's about. Do you love love Him? Do you love Him? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Otherwise, you perish. It's one or the other. You either love Christ or you don't. Uh, you know this one. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, wait a minute. That sounds like a works righteousness, right? So, keeping the commandments is what it is to love Jesus, right? Maybe a trick question here. No. He said, well, just said that. Mm -hmm, It did. That's not what He said, though. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments is what He said. You say, what do you mean? Well, He didn't say loving Me is keeping My commandments. You see... That's what the Pharisees and the traditional Jew did. They did the commandments. At least they thought they were. They were keeping them. If you love me, something will happen to you. You will have a change in your life, in your heart. The love is far deeper than just the physical doing of things or saying things or thinking things. The law is good. We know that God meant it for good. Right? But if we're just, if we're doing, we want salvation, so we're going to keep the commandments, well, you're just as guilty as the Pharisees. But if you love God, then that's what the first two commandments about. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. With everything. With the Holy Spirit there. We can do that. We fail quite often though. We don't do it every moment of the day. Sometime this morning, we probably haven't loved the Lord really a whole lot. Possibly. Might have been yesterday. Who knows? The thing is, is that we know we in ourselves fall short. But we are to love Christ, to love Him. That's what it is about, loving Christ. So, loving Him is far deeper than anything that we can do. Look at Luke 14, 33. If you love Him, what will you do? You will keep His commands because you know it's what you do to show that you love Him. And it's good for us. Luke 14.33 It's out of love that we do these things. That's our motive. That's a big word there, the motive of it. How about this one? Jesus speaking, "...so then none of you can be My disciple..." This is interesting. "...who does not give up all his own possessions..." What's the word that we're dealing with right at the moment? It's zeal, isn't it? Jesus says some things like if you don't love me, you know, then you're not my disciple. If you do not keep my commandments, right, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. To give up everything, it means your whole self. It means to die to self, to be willing to do that. Do we do that all the time? Your Lord. And then we kind of pull some things back, right? We're still dealing with it. That's dying daily. We have to die daily. There is a dying to self, and yet we still are dealing with it. But he's being real radical here. You know how radical Jesus was? He had such an all-out passion. And so did Paul and all the believers and the apostles that they showed they loved Christ. And it was what... They, who they looked at. And so they just did things that the Spirit was working in them. Jesus said something in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5.29, that is just absolutely radical, and it causes all sorts of havoc with a lot of Christians. You want to go to heaven? Uh-oh, uh-oh, I just now thought of a song, and most of you probably won't know what it is, but it was by the Ozark Mountain Daredevils if you want to get to heaven, and whatever that next line is, I'm not going to say anything, and I know Zach back there knows exactly what it is. (laughs) And you know what? I think they probably have the wrong idea here. If you want to get to heaven, Jesus says, pluck out your eyes. You want to get to heaven? Chop off your hand. Whoa. (laughs) Jesus, really. Now we know, literally, he's not saying that, but what's behind it, he is saying, and he's saying, Whatever it is, you need to take me seriously. You need to really love me. And of course, we know there have actually been people that have done that. Gouged out their eyes because they looked at things they shouldn't have, or chopped off their hands because they did things they shouldn't have. And guess what? They are almost on the same realm that the uh, Pharisees were doing. But there was an illustration that Jesus was doing in His teaching there. And He was using a language that would absolutely shock people. You're sitting there and you've seen His miracles and He is speaking so brilliantly and so amazing and all of a sudden He comes up with, you want to go to heaven? Jump off your hand. Is this crazy? What did I just hear? Poke out your eye! Why does he do that? He wants to shock people, that they wouldn't be blasé. He wants to stir people up. He wants to move people whenever he says things that they're radical. We we heard some of those things. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites! Matthew 23, one after another. So this is the loving Jesus that I've always heard about. Some people would say, well, if if He's that way, I don't want any part of Him. All I like the words Jesus that are in red. Well, Those words are in red if you have a red letter Bible. If you don't have a red letter, they're in black letters. It doesn't matter. Jesus says it. What happens if Paul says it? Well, that's Paul. That's a bigot. (laughs) No, that's the words of God just like Jesus' words are. Right? Same word of God. Uh, You see, what Jesus was doing as he makes those illustrations, he's saying, to follow me, you have to be radical too. Oh, so we're going to come to a close. Somebody's got the timer on me today. It is right at close to 60 minutes. So I am about done. Only problem is, I am on just number one. Are you kidding me? Oh, I started two. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, what kind of righteousness? We have two kinds of righteousness. One is man's righteousness, and there is God's righteousness. What is the righteousness of God? Well, the very nature of God. Uh, He's good, He's glorious, God is just, He is right. He's right in everything. Has He ever been wrong? Never. Has he, he's always been. He's always existed. That's what His name means. Yahweh. It means self-existence. That's the name of God. He's always been here. Always will be. He's always been good. He's been holy. I associate with righteousness. I associate with what? I associate with holiness. Because it's good. It sets God apart. He is unique. He's not like people. He's not like creation. He is totally separated from all of His creation and mankind. And you see, that's God's righteousness. He's good. Is there any man good? No, because the Bible says that. Jesus even said that. Why do you call me good? There's no man good but God in heaven, right? He's good. Nobody else is. We have to take that literally. We're no good. We're no good. We're no good. Linda Ronstadt. I'm pulling out the songs today. I'm trying to do Alistair Big here, right? (laughs) And one time I saw on, the on, uh, I think it was uh, just out on the internet, and it was all over YouTube, and John Piper was up there and he says, I'm bad! I'm bad! And they just kept doing that over and over and then they showed uh, MacArthur and they showed Sproul and they were all saying the same thing. And that, they kind of put it into a song and such. I don't know, was it Michael Jackson's song probably? <laughs> Um, anyway, that was a little bit different wasn 't it? But God is holy; man is not and you say, "What about people who do good? you know there 's a human righteousness, human righteousness really is where one avoids gross immorality or even immorality. They avoid that they try to avoid most obvious sins and uh, forms of depravity that are so obvious. And they even do good deeds. Now that would be righteousness, right? Uh, Well, not according to the righteousness of God. Not according to His righteousness. Uh, You see, Jeremiah said what? Your righteousness is as filthy rags. So, nobody has righteousness. There's only one. How can anybody say they're good? And they're going to heaven because they've done more better things than they've done bad. Wow. There's, there's a gift of free and sovereign grace. Nothing can add up to God's righteousness. The gift says you don't have it, but I have it. That's what God says. It's to be taken by faith. It's to be received. It was wrought out. It was purchased for you by Jesus Christ. And now we run into number 4 and we're on verse 4. I want to tell you I love this verse. Uh, We brought it up last week. Chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes, Christ is the end of the law. The word there, end. Let's let's take that word. This is going to mean a lot because uh, have you ever heard of the word telos? Uh, some of you probably are very familiar with it because Jesus was on the cross, and what did he say in three words? It is finished. Telios. It's finished. It's the end. It was the goal. It was the very fulfillment. It was the termination. It was the culmination. He did all of the work. He did the work while He was living. And He did it passively also as He was put on the cross. And it was all paying for our sins. It brought an end to seeking or having a quest for righteousness without God or without Christ. It brought an end to that. Uh, I like this word here, for Christ is the goal of the law. The law in itself is not the means or, or the end of salvation. It's a means to show that we're lost and we need Christ's righteousness. For Christ is the goal of the law. The law is the teacher. The law brings one to Christ. That's what the law does. Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness. And do you see what He's just done to the Jews? You see, He knew this because He had been through to it and He was seeking out that righteousness that was of His own even though he was very zealous for God. Did he believe in God? Oh, yeah. Did he believe in the creation? Did he believe in the whole Old Testament? He absolutely did. And I'll tell you what, as far as he's concerned, he lived it out too. He was the man. Paul was. And now he says, I've learned something. The law has been terminated. Not that the law is... Done, But it, as far as the quest for righteousness, no longer do people do that. It's for people who believe. It's only for people who believe that you can be lost and you realize you're lost and you need righteousness. You know, you need Christ's righteousness. Once a person believes in Christ, the quest for righteousness through works ends you no longer are questing on a journey through that righteousness because it will never come to an end. But Christ is the end. He's the only way. He's the end of that quest for righteousness by works. Because it's a gift through faith and you can't dismiss that uh, to everyone who believes That's the human side where we believe. He puts everything into us, but we have to believe. We repent. We cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ because of what's done at the cross. You see why the Gospel is necessary to deliver? The Word of God has to be delivered, and that's where we get into the very next text. You cannot be a believer without the Word of God being delivered to you. If somebody comes up and says, hey, you can be good, you can go to heaven. Would you believe that? Yeah, okay. Boom, that's it. That's not the gospel. Put you in the same place where you know of where the Jews were at. It's you have to be saved by the gospel. And Israel rejected the gospel. And Paul is saying that's the problem with them. They rejected the free gift. And they said, no, I'm going to go in by my works. I'm not going to let anybody do that for me and I don't trust in that Jesus anyway. He says things that are offensive. I don't like Him. Right? It's faith. It's believing. Believers receive what the workers never get. See, believers can't work for it. Faith signs the covenant... And righteousness is made our own. That I believe is what James Montgomery Boyce said. Faith signs the covenant. It's a gift to me. I make it my own because that's what He gave me. I gave Him nothing. I had nothing but my sin. Christ is our righteousness. That's what verse four is saying. It's not the righteousness of the law our Christ, our Savior, is the goal of the law for righteousness. Who's our righteousness? Christ. God provided the way. It's all grace. Believe it. Love Christ. And you will do what He desires for you to do because you desire to do it. Christ our righteousness. He is our robe, our coat of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, great God, may we have learned something about zeal for the Lord today in the biblical way. It's a zeal for your righteousness. And may we have learned something about righteousness, And knowing it's Christ and Christ alone and never of ourselves, we cannot add Christ to our own righteousness because we have nothing there. That's good. You can never accept that. But you always accept your Son and we are found accepted in the Beloved. And to that, we all say, Amen.